Hi, I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's conversation, we'll cover the growing divergence between the United States' fast-growing economy and Canada's slow-growing economy, and what the differences might tell us about policy and politics in the two countries. We'll also discuss a new book about former Ontario Premier Mike Harris's legacy, to which we both contributed, and its lessons for today. David, thanks as always for joining us. Good to be with you. At a time when there's a lot of news happening around the world, one of the most underreported stories is that the U.S. economy has been performing like gangbusters. It's actually on track to soon exceed output projections from prior to the pandemic, which is extraordinary. Let's start there, David. Why do you think the strong performance of the American economy has not only been overlooked by a lot of the media, but would also be a surprise to many Americans who tell pollsters that they're generally down on the economy? How has Joe Biden presided over a strong economy and yet seemingly not gotten credit for it? Well, Americans do complain when they talk to pollsters. But when we look at what they do, they are showing every indication of economic confidence, whether it's new business startups, whether it's Christmas shopping, whether it's going out, their propensity to go out for dinner. uh, Every decision that we can collectively measure shows these are people who not only are doing well, but are acting like people who know they're doing well. I think the Democrats and the Biden administration are paying a little bit of of a price here for the president's age, Mm. because in any administration, the chief spokesperson for the administration, the chief communicator has to be the president himself or herself. And Biden is not able to do that to the with the force and to the degree that previous presidents have done. So without the president forcing the message, the message doesn't get forced. I think also just generally, um, inflation is such a new experience for so many Americans. I mean, not not for, I, mean, I can remember it, but you have to be as old as me. I mean, I, I remember when the potato bags of potato chips would shrink and shrink and the price would go up <laughs> five cents, 10 cents, 15 cents for the childhood economy of the early 1970s. Inflation was very real and painful. Um, but we have lived through a long time of disinflation, deflation, price stability, low interest rates, ultra low interest rates. So this is a shock. And it hurts especially homeowners, home buyers, and people who are buying their first home, who are facing startling increases in mortgage rates. So all these these things are real. That said, the American economy is the best performing of the major economies by a lot. And Canada is unfortunately one of the worst performing of the major economies. Uh, Britain's doing, I think, even worse than Canada. And again, by a substantial degree. That's a great segue to my next question. As you say, well, the U.S. economy is performing strongly, the Canadian one is rather weak. We managed to avoid a a recession in the last quarter, but that's mostly a result of technical revisions to GDP and historic increases in immigration, which has grown the size of the economy, but not necessarily made Canadians richer and wealthier. In fact, 
GDP per capita is now roughly at the same level as 2018. Talk about the different trajectories between our two economies. What explains the divergence in your mind? Well, I think obviously there there are many factors, but let me point to one that is not policy related and one that is policy related. The one that's not policy related is Canada is a very trade dependent economy, much more so than the United States, and therefore has much more exposure to China. And and, And the Chinese slowdown has been one of the great changes in the post-pandemic economy. From Mm. 2000 to 2019, China is on a growth explosion, slowing down a little bit in the later part of that period. And of course, Canada not only sells a lot to China, but it sells into world markets many of the inputs that go into China. So Canadian potash grows the feed that sustains the Chinese chickens that a country that is able to buy more meat is able to grow. So it isn't that you sell the potash directly to China, but you sell it into supply chains whose ultimate beneficiary is the Chinese consumer. And with the Chinese consumer doing worse and worse, Canada feels that through all kinds of things it sells directly and into into global supply chains. So that's not policy related. There's nothing that can be done about that. Um, That's just a fact that weighs more heavily on Canada than it does on the United States. But something that is very policy related is Canadians have a lot of home debt, a lot of mortgage debt. Much more, the Canadian house market is much more inflated and distorted than the U.S. market. And so when interest rates go up, and Canadians, of course, they, 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 there's no deductibility of home mortgage interest rates. So when interest rates go up, that leaves Canadian consumers with a lot less to spend on everything else than their American counterparts have got. And I, I think that's one of the real motors when you're looking at what's going wrong, specifically in the Ontario economy. It just seems that after paying for their house, Ontarians have a lot less for everything else. Yeah, we'll come to consumer confidence numbers in a minute because I think they reflect precisely what you're talking about there. Um, but before I, we get there, I want to put a theory to you that I've been thinking about for some time. Traditional economics tells us that there are trade-offs between economic efficiency and equity. Yet, over the past decade or so, some credible progressive economists sought to challenge this theory, or at least a simplistic version of it. Uh, they've persuasively argued that there are some pro-equity policies that can also have efficiency upsides. It seems to me like the Trudeau government internalized those arguments and turn them into an almost caricatured understanding of how the economy works, that it could essentially neglect questions of economic efficiency in favor of climate policy and social welfare spending and so on, which they would then dress up as a pro-growth agenda, even though the arguments that these policy choices were growth enhancing were shaky at best. So let me put it to you. How much do you think the differences here are ideological in a way that the Trudeau government has tested a progressive economic theory and discovered that it doesn't quite hold up in practice? Well, one way that you can see that, I, th- I think that's very true and perceptive. One, one, one way you can see it is in the United States, when the United States spends a lot, and when the United States runs big deficits, it doesn't necessarily have the interest rate impact that you might simplistically predict. You know, big spending, big deficits, therefore interest rates go up. That's a, the, US do- the, the U.S. dollar is also its price is also set, its interest rates are also set by the demand of the world for safe U.S. assets. And so the United States has, has and sometimes that can have a negative effect, but in the past few years, that's had a very beneficial effect. You can run big deficits without so much interest rate pain um, because the world wants American assets. Canada doesn't have, you know, no one has to hold their wealth in Canadian dollars or Canadian assets. Canadian assets are safe, but they're just, they're, you know, I don't think they're safer than, say, Dutch assets. 
so Canada has, in order to disinflate, has had much more interest rate pain uh, than the United States has done. And the spending that the Trudeau government has done has created much more distortion in the price of assets, especially housing. I think one of the big facts about Canadian life is it just has fewer important housing markets than the United States does. Um, jobs are created, Vancouver, Cal Calgary, Edmonton, Toronto, London, Ottawa, where else? So you've got, you know, and you've got this one giant housing market in Toronto, one big housing market in Vancouver, and then a number of smaller centers, but you don't, you know, there's no, you know, you, Canadians don't have the option of saying, gee, I'm priced out of Los Angeles, shall I move to Denver or shall I move to Nashville? Um, and so when you've had this overspending, you create these housing bubbles. This is a thing I think that the conservatives are, have released a video about that is very compelling. One of their, their mo it's like a long form thing, eight minutes long, but they describe how overspending has, shows up in asset bubbles, that the asset holders, you know, have a wealth effect from, but everyone who needs the asset, everyone who needs to use the asset suffers for. And if you're financing the asset with debt, as most mortgage owners do, then even the fact that your asset is more valuable doesn't mean anything because your debt is also more burdensome. You mentioned earlier how Canadian consumers and households are doing. One thing we talked a lot about at the Hub last week is new consumer confidence numbers from the Conference Board of Canada, which show that Canadians are more pessimistic about the economy today than they've been over the past 60 years, with a couple of dubious exceptions. April 2020, in the depths of the pandemic, and June 1982, when unemployment was 11% and five-year mortgage rates were approaching 20%. Talk about the inherent political economy challenges of economic stagnation and consumer pessimism. What are the risks for the Trudeau government? And what do you think policymakers should be doing to pull the economy out of its doldrums? I didn't know about June 82. That's, that's an, so that, was that people correctly calling the market bottom? Like, Things, the future has to be better because <laughs> it can't get worse. This is terrible. It's getting worse than this. Um, look, I mean, uh, housing factors into all kinds of things. It factors into uh, the ability of young people to start families. You know, I think that, I, I wonder whether there's a kind of, when we see the pessimism that is expressed also in the United States, whether the pessimism is not some kind of articulation of the feeling that a lot of people of our age or my age have, which is, you know, my life has, has sort of worked out and I'm pretty comfortable. But when I look at my kids, I re really worry for them because how do they get that first step on the housing ladder? And, and that means, and because they can't, that means they're delaying having the children of their own. So where are my grandchildren? And I think that that may be more than purely economic factors. That may be something that's weighing on the confidence, on the confidence numbers. And, and Canada also is, Canada's made the this is, a, if you really want to blame the Trudeau government for something, they've committed to two policy choices um, that are in radical distinction. We've talked about this before. One, take lots and lots of immigrants. Two, don't make it easy to build houses for those immigrants. So if you're adding 300,000 people a year, I don't know how many households we're adding to the Canadian population, but you know, 200,000 households a year to the Canadian population, You'd better be building 200,000 units of housing. And of course, nothing like that is happening. And because the job market is so much in the greater Toronto area, it's maybe not even, even with what there's probably no policy in the world that can provide enough, an, enough housing for that. So there, there's just this contradiction between the population policy and the housing policy. And I think people figure that out. And Canadians are pretty tolerant. They're not hostile to new immigrants as such. But they said, well, where is everyone going to live? And specifically, where is my daughter going to live because she and her boyfriend can't get a house together and start a family? 
The Hub has the perfect holiday gift for the thinking person in your life. That's right. You can give the gift of The Hub. Hub gifties get all kinds of great benefits, including a one-size-fits-all luxury twill hub baseball cap to sport their hubbiness this holiday. You get access for your giftee to Hub Form, our daily email newsletter and discussion group, complimentary access for the giftee to all our live events, and special offers on events, books, and Hub merchandise. Grab your Hub gift subscription right now at our website, www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the Join button, scroll to the bottom of our membership page, follow the instructions, and we'll give you 20% off right now on this gift offer. Simply input the promo code SUBSCRIBE20 at checkout. Give the gift of the Hub this holiday season. We're speaking on December 7th. Today, David, we released an episode of our regular podcast, Hub Dialogues, with Cato Institute Senior Fellow, Joan Nornberg, about economic growth and globalization and and the importance of, of a focus on rising living standards. And one thing we talked about in the context of some of the positive numbers we've seen out of the US economy, not just in recent months, but really over the past uh, decade or two relative to its peers, is whether the U.S. economy can continue to turn along in spite of its dysfunctional politics or if politics ultimately comes a break on American growth, dynamism, and innovation. What do you think? I thought you were going to ask a different question, so I mentally prepared a different answer. So let me give you the answer I prepared. And then, um, <laughs> One of the, the questions you might have is there's a lot of feeling right now, you hear it a lot, that people today have had no improvement over people in some year in the past. And I think this is just untrue. And it's just, it's a testimony to our bad memories that we, we don't remember what things were like as, you know, as, as recently as the 1990s. But the, the kernel of truth in that is if you started your economic life in 1948, and if you came toward the end of your economic life in 19, the middle 1970s, and you would live for many years as a retiree, but the, you, your in, income had started from such a low base and had improved so much that no matter how big a complainer you were, you couldn't miss, my life has become dramatically better. When you start from a higher base and the pace of improvement is slower, even though you really are better off, it's not, if you're you're inclined to be negative or pessimistic or to ungrateful, you know, you you have a basis for that. So I think that's one of the things that has changed is, you know, as we get more and more prosperous, we become less and less appreciative. The, The difference from, you know, moving from a house that didn't have an indoor toilet to one that did is much more dramatic than moving from a house that had one bathroom for everybody in the family to having one bathroom for every person in the family, which is what, what we're doing now. As to the political dysfunction in the United States, look, there's, there's a Russian roulette element uh, that, that the increasing willingness, especially of Republicans, but not only them, to play games with things like the debt ceiling has meant that the Americans are willing to ri- uh, risk economic catastrophe for partisan gains in a way that they just didn't used to be. And that, and one day you have to wonder if, you know, if you're playing volleyball with nuclear weapons, someday someone's (laughs) going to drop the volleyball and the nuclear weapon may go off. But the American system has always been, it's always had a lot more room for rent seeking than parliamentary systems do. And for all the many things you can say about the Canadian system and undue progressivism and overspending, the American system just is very vulnerable to things that are that redistribute in random ways from politically organized groups to le- from less politically to more politically organized groups. 
I'll give you one very uh, stark example, because I think we've talked about this before, which is the complexity of the American tax code, which requires many people to hire tax preparers who shouldn't have to, and just about everybody to use paid computer software when they shouldn't have to. Um, and that's just the result of giveaways to special interest groups. And that, that, that is, a, that is a dis- dysfunction. And countries that have higher levels of taxation and spending still don't do dumb things like force people to waste hundreds of thousands of dollars on tax preparation unnecessarily. Let's turn the conversation now to the political and policy legacy of Ontario Premier Mike Harris. I, I mentioned earlier that you contributed New Forward to a book on him. I was pleased to contribute an essay on his social welfare reforms. I want to wrap up our conversation with some questions about Harris, his record, and the possible lessons for today. We've been talking about the parallels between Canada and the United States. How much should we understand Harris's common sense revolution, as his policy platform was famously called, as part of a broader conservative ascendancy that we witnessed in the 1980s and 1990s in the United States, including, of course, the Reagan presidency and Newt Gingrich's contract with America, and just a general sense that conservatives were both winning the battle of ideas and at the ballot box. Go back to that era when North American conservatism was really focused on ideas and arguments. Yeah. Well, Harris instituted a series of both reforms to taxing and spending and a series of reforms to the efficiency of the economy. Uh, Specifically, he got rid of rent controls in in the city of of Toronto, which is a a huge boon. It was one of the things that made the the transformation of Toronto into a great world city possible because it was Toronto had for 20 years been misgoverned by these completely foolish controls on rents. And he also tried he also tried to change the path of both spe- spending and, and taxing in a way that would be pro-growth, but also just allay the burden of, of, of debt. So it was a it was a radical government, but it was not a high intensity government. Harris's opponents were often very high intensity, but Harris tried to avoid culture war. He tried to avoid provocation. He had that kind of kind of sleepy manner in which you know, people, he was doing radical things, but doing it in this way where he's trying to reassure you that nothing too disturbing was going on. And that's been sort of the opposite of where Canadian conservatism has been since 2010, where actually, you know, uh, the Harper government didn't do stuff that was that radical, but it was be talked more radical than it did, whereas Harris did more radical than he talked. There was an agenda off the shelf ready to be implemented. And Canada was a little slower to catch up to the conservative policy revolution of the 70s and 80s. And many of the steps of that revolution were actually implemented at the federal level by liberal governments. It was the, you know, Cretchen government with Paul Martin as finance minister did a lot of the, I mean, not to diminish what the Mulroney government did, but they were, they balanced program spending, but because interest rates were high in the 1980s, they were never able to balance the books entirely because after, they could never balance the books, including interest costs. They made sure that the government raised as much as it spent on programs. They were never able to close that gap with interest costs. Cretchen and Martin did close that gap, partly helped by lower interest rates, but partly just by, again, severe fiscal discipline. So Canada did those things in the, in the 90s and the 2000s that other societies had done in the 70s, 80s, and, and early 90s. I want to take up something you, you mentioned in your answer. Uh, Harris, as you set out in your foreword, was something of a dichotomous figure. He was a progressive conservative. He led a common sense revolution. He was from a rural area, but had a cosmopolitan agenda. He was tough, but optimistic, and on and on and on. How did these dichotomies that ran through Harris himself contribute to his political success? Well, Canada doesn't like radicalism. And I think there are deep reasons for that. Uh, Canadians, I think, have, have absorbed the idea. Canada is a very prosperous and successful country. 
but with great vulnerability to political instability. Hmm. You know, the West, Quebec, cities versus rural, indigenous versus uh, non-indigenous, that there, there are all these fault lines that could turn really nasty. So the, the analogy I, I, I once used about Canada is Canada's like, a bank built on top of a dynamite factory. <laughs> and, and everybody is enjoying, you know, the proceeds of the bank, but everyone is also uncomfortably aware that tick, 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 tick down there. So because, because of the sense of political, Canada disfavors people who look like they're going to stir things up and cause trouble in a way that could really be harmful for everybody. I think there, there is a, and so, so the Canadian style has always been, there have been exceptions to this, uh, you know, the elder Trudeau was, was an exception, at least sometimes. And I think one of the things that has been disturbing about the Justin Trudeau government is Justin Trudeau has been a culture warrior of the left. And he, he, this way has been, as I said about Harper, has been not that radical in policy terms, like in economic policy terms. So they, they, they're more expensive than some. You know, but they haven't done, they, they didn't create a state-owned oil company the way his father did in the 1980s. They didn't uh, try to get out of NAFTA or USM. They, they accepted the free trade paradigm. They didn't try to tamper with the, the basic tax structure. The GST is still there. Um, but what they did do was wage a lot of culture wars about, was Canada a good country? Then when, you, when, when the prime minister is saying our country is guilty of genocide, you know, that is a, that is a provocation. That is a provocation. And in many other ways. And so, so he's made, contributed to making Canadian politics more high intensity. And that's a hard thing to step off because when you give these provocations, people take provocations. Mm. And, and, they, and their own politics becomes as provocative. And given the inherent, or not given the potential instability of Canada, this is a very dangerous game to play. And Harris always, he was from that generation where he, he learned a lot of his style from previous generations of of progressive conservatives. There's the famous line of Bill Davis, who was elected Premier of Ontario in 1971. And there was much criticism of him for his very bland mannerisms. And on the <laughs> night he won his gigantic victory in 1971, he famously said, bland works. <laughs> well, I, I think there's, there's wisdom there, but uh, it's been forgotten in recent years and on, at many, in many places on the political spectrum. You end your forward with the observation that Harris's leadership has some lasting lessons for Canadian politicians in general, like you just talked about, and conservatives in particular. What besides blandness are some of them? Understand that there are dichotomies here and the need to be optimistic and, and the need to show people that um, you are governing for everybody and never losing sight of the fact that you're doing reform when you're doing reforms that are kind of tough. You can't sell a potentially tough reform by saying, okay, well, this will benefit my voters. You have to sell the tough reform by saying, this is going to have large, a lot of people who don't, didn't vote for me are going to benefit from this. Let's wrap up, David, by returning to the subject of the kind of foundational importance of economic and fiscal policy. It's something similarly that you, that you outlined in the foreword to Mike Harris. What did he understand and what must Canadian policymakers understand in light of the economic stagnation that we talked about at the outset? I remember covering these debt debates very intensely. I interviewed Paul Martin in about 1993. I um, did a lot of work with the, the Ray government as they tried to cope with it. Because nobody has to hold Canadian dollar assets, Canada has to be a much more fiscally conscious country than the United States can be. And Canadian progressives who often get their ideas from their American counterparts, people need to hold U.S. dollar assets. There's really no choice about that. Um, and so that gives the United States a scope on fiscal policy that Canada cannot have. And Tommy Douglas famously said, progressive hopes have been wrecked again and again on fiscal irresponsibility. And 
that's something that Canadians of all stripes, especially Canadian progressives, but not only them, need, need to keep in mind. Canada got into a mess of debt trouble in the 1980s, and it was originally Pierre Trudeau's fault. But even after governments began, I mean, he, it wasn't just that he massively overspent, but he made these tremendous gambles on state-led development in the energy industry that were incredibly irresponsible and foolish and obviously stupid even at the time. Um, I, I remember as a 21-year-old looking at the, the plans for the new, what was it called, NEP, New Energy Policy. And, and what they showed was you know, charts of the price of oil from 1981 to you know, the future. And it showed this steady state line. And if you look back, the price of oil, but, but the future holds slow, steady, predictable growth of the petroleum price. And on that basis, we're going to gamble the whole economic future of the country because we can tell through our cybernetic models what the price of oil will be in 1987. And of course, the price of oil then proceeds immediately to collapse. And the whole th- and Canadians then have a lost decade of desperately trying to repay the debts that were incurred by this irresponsible government. And it was really painful. And it took more than a decade to, to recover from. Don't make those mistakes. A generation of Canadians learned from the 82 to 93 experience. Um, don't get into this mess in the first place. And I worry that in the past few years that that wisdom has been lost. Uh, we've just become farther away from the painful experience that taught the wisdom. So the, the task ahead for Canadian governments is going to be returning to fiscal prudence. And the problem is that's no fun. That's really no fun. But it, the, only, the only excuse for it is, yeah, but not doing it is, will be even less fun, even though it's not obvious in advance how much not fun not doing it will be. And hopefully this new book about Premier Harris and his legacy can help a new generation of Canadians learn learn those lessons. And and, and these conversations can contribute to that uh, re-education as well. Uh, David, I want to thank you for joining me for another episode. And I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Frum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Gletch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. 